house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Who took your sister? <laughs> you were a hood. If you catch him, you'll wish you'd stayed in the house. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast getting corrected by Lisa Kudrow about whether or not we threw a plate of eggs at her. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, roasting over a fire in a rawhide bag with my favorite settler woman, Joe Reed. Insert primal scream here (sighs) i very much appreciate your energy in that intro chris because my energy has been sapped by ron howard the missing you know what i think i can defend this movie and i'll probably spend the episode defending this movie and i like when we disagree so yes i'm fine with you thinking that it was boring but like we should also mention we are officially now kicking off our 2003 miniseries. Yay! It's very exciting. I think yes. starting it with The Missing, even if you think the movie is boring, was the right way to go because, like, this was the big studio movie. This was oh, a yeah. just recent Oscar-winning director. This was the... I, I mean, I looked up the budget. It's not as high as it was, but it was the larger budget, like, complete failure. Like, on every front, it was poorly reviewed. It got no nominations. It was a bomb. Yes. Like, I think this was the way to start. Absolutely. So, I before we fully get into it, as odd as and unbelievable as it may seem, we didn't get to everything I wanted to talk about in our intro episode for 2003. And the one movie that we, that we glossed over because I had meant to revisit it and then didn't because I'm bad at organizing things was in, when we were talking about leafing through the entertainment weekly fall preview issue for that year, one of the movies that was on there that was mentioned several times in the issue and not only in the write up for its own movie was the Disney production of the the alamo which ultimately was directed by john lee hancock that name sounds familiar he was the guy who ultimately directed sandra bullock to an oscar in the blind side uh starring billy bob thornton and patrick wilson and jason patrick and dennis quaid other people like it was a pretty star-studded uh, movie version of the real life events of the Alamo. And it was supposed to be the like big old fashioned blockbuster Oscar player at the end of 2003. It was initially supposed to come out in December of 03. And that's why it was all over this fall preview issue. Now, after that issue came out, the movie was pulled off of the schedule, pushed to April of 04. And 
that basically was the indication that the movie was not going to be the Oscar player that everybody had hoped it was. Mm-hmm. And then when it did ultimately open in 04, it didn't really do much and everybody had forgotten about it by the end of that year. But we talk about, we'll talk about the Alamo more at length here because that movie was initially supposed to be directed by Ron Howard. It was supposed to be the big follow-up to A Beautiful Mind. It was going to be, you know, Imagine Entertainment, Brian Grazer, uh, Ron Howard, and it was supposed to star... Was it Russell Crowe? I don't remember Russell Crowe being attached, but, like, it was a thing when Ron Howard left that movie, it kind of derailed. Um... Right. And then, of course, Ron Howard goes. And he wanted a big, he wanted a huge budget for it. And Disney balked at the budget that he wanted for it, essentially. So, okay. Film was originally conceived by Imagine Entertainment with Ron Howard directing, Brian Grazer producing. Russell Crowe was originally cast in the role of Sam Houston. That role eventually went to Dennis Quaid. Ethan Hawke was originally cast in the role that Patrick Wilson ended up taking. And Billy Bob Thornton was the only one who survived that initial cast to end up being in the movie that we eventually got Ron Howard wanted two mil- $200 million for a production budget. Ultimately the, the John Lee Hancock version got half that to, to do what it did. And of course you mentioned, you imagine that downgrading from, you know, the 2003 version, 2002, 2003 version of Russell Crowe to the two ta- 2002 version of Dennis Quaid would save you a good bit of money from there. <laughs> um, and but yeah, so the movie was initially supposed to come out in December of '03, and it got bumped. And so, but a lot of the initial framing of the missing was: Did Ron Howard make the right decision? Did Ron Howard, mm-hmm. in leaving the Alamo and ultimately deciding to make the missing instead another western? Like clearly, that was you know there was some intent there that like Ron Howard wanted to, if not stick it to Disney, then at least you know, be like, I had my heart set on making a Western and I'm going to make a Western, goddammit. And so if you read this EW issue, there was a lot of, you know, framing of pitting the missing against the Alamo or a lot of this idea of, you know, the resurrection of the Western as... Yeah, this is like the beginning of the resurrection of the Western, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But like at this point, the Western was like we at least have like these revisionist Westerns now. But like the true Western, this was the beginning of trying to make it a thing again because it was a fully dead genre. Like there was the Colin Farrell one a few years prior to this. But other than that, it's like after the 90s and like what Kevin Costner was trying to do, it was dead. But, like, earlier this year, you also had a Kevin Costner one that actually made some money. It made, like, $50 million open range. Right, and that was mentioned in a lot of the reviews that you would read of The Missing and a lot of the previews, which was, can The Missing build on the unexpected success of Kevin Costner's open range in that, you know, open range sort of, like, opened the door a little bit for, oh, maybe America is sort of longing for a re you know revitalization of the western genre and the missing was intended was sort of being framed as you know a test case for the next step which is really funny if you actually watch the missing because right this movie is not for you know for as much as it's a ron howard movie and you know 
when Ron Howard took over, I remember when Ron Howard took over Solo, for example, from uh, Lord and Miller after that whole debacle. And the sort of collective sigh that went out where it's just like, oh, it's not going to be weird and interesting anymore. Ron Howard's going to really flatten it, really sort of like, you know, do the Ron Howard thing, which is kind of unsurprising, un, you know, not daring. Mm-hmm. He, he'll, you know, he'll pull it in for a landing, but he's not going to do anything cool with it. And that reputation isn't unearned by him. Like, that's, it's not like that's an unfair, you know, characterization of Howard's movies. His movies are fairly, you know, not even meat and potatoes. Meat and potatoes sort of has this idea of just this like workaday, whatever. It's just like Ron Howard's movies are meant to be enjoyed by as wide a swath uh, yes. of an audience as possible, and that's what you get Ron Howard to do is whatever There's subject like matter the expected you're doing. Emotional, emotional beats and like all of the right. like peaks and valleys. This movie's going to appeal to as many people as possible, and the missing is the one movie I can think of that jumps out at me from his filmography, especially his you know last 15, 20 years of his filmography. That does not deliver that. The missing is weird and the missing is for nasty Ron Howard only, and 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 not exactly like tough as in rigorous, but just sort of like like some Off-putting. bad shit happens in this movie. And what's interesting is if you read the reviews for the missing, and we'll maybe go into this a little bit. A lot of the reviews wanted it to be meaner. Wanted they're like both Roger Ebert and Elvis Mitchell in their reviews specifically mentioned the fact that the kidnappers don't rape or try to rape Evan Rachel Wood as evidence that like Ron Howard was soft peddling this movie. And like, I don't think that's the problem with the missing that like Evan Rachel Wood was not raped in this movie, but but, I think that was a lot of the, the initial reaction was just sort of like, Oh, Ron Howard made this movie. Obviously the, like there wasn't a sense of palpable sexual violence threatening these, you know, these women. Cause of course a lot of the comparisons of this movie were to the searchers, which that's fairly like that. Yeah. Those comparisons are pretty obvious because it's these, you know, white Hollywood stars, you know, playing these, you know, frontier characters who are off to rescue a kidnapped young girl from Native American marauders, essentially. Yeah. And there are, you know, as a viewer, you get plenty of opportunity to sort of, I did at least you have the same sort of thoughts of the searchers where, and of every movie that, you know, is, you know, white people trying to, it's the searchers with gore. Yeah. Yeah. But just, there is a small, like, I don't want to say feminization, but like focus on the female narrative. And like, we'll get into that too. um, That like, they were kind of fascinated by the idea of the settler women. Um, I don't know if it I don't all think the way this there. movie I was going to say I don't this, think this movie delivers on that as much as it either as intends it to or as people or as people were trying to give it credit for. Right. And ultimately, cuz my thing with these movies is not that like you get into a little bit of quicksand when you talk about like are we depicting the Native American characters fairly or like well, this kind of thing happened and this kind of thing happened kind of a lot. And like, that was, you know, a thing in frontier times. And I think the movie paints itself in a corner with that, that it kind of thinks it can get away with. Um, Or it like posits this like marauding team, largely led by white people. Right. To like avoid that in a way. 
Yeah. That I and don't I think sort it fully of just does. get into I get into this whole like why, you know, why are these always the stories we end up telling though, which is you know, the stories where the white characters are the aggrieved party and they are the ones who get to then sort of righteously and sympathetically we will ride, fully get into this because yeah. it I think it is a problem with this genre and it is why the genre should stay fucking dead. Um that said, I kind of like the movie a little bit. I was I for somebody who You actual, are a land of contradictions. Much someone like who the... actively despises this genre, I as someone who hates these movies, I liked this movie as much as I probably could. Um, but as I mentioned, we are talking about The Missing. We've talked about it. It's directed by Ron Howard, written by Ken Kaufman from Thomas Eidson's book. Um, the leads are Tommy Lee Jones and Kate Blanchett. There's also Evan Rachel Wood, Jenna Boyd, Eric Schweig, um, Aaron Eckhart for like a hot 15 minutes, like a little gotcha that he dies so quickly. Um, our good our good Judy Lizzie Moss and Val Kilmer being a weirdo again. I was um, going to say, talk about hot seconds in this movie. Like he is there and gone, but yeah. it's interesting. His presence. Well, you know, I'll talk about that in a second, but yeah, we'll do he it. brings up a lot of the sort of alt Westerns of the era that uh, the missing, I kind of had hoped it was going to be and wasn't, but I want to talk about that on the other side of what I imagine you are leading up to, which is, is your 60 my 60 plot. seconds of Before torture. Before we get too in the weeds of the movie, we are going to do our 60 second plot description if you, sir, are ready. I mean, ready as I'll ever be. All right. Joseph, your 60 second plot description for The Missing starts now. Okay, so we're in, I want to say, 1880s in the New Mexico Territory. Kate Blanchett plays a woman named Maggie Gilkison. She is a single mom just trying to make it in this world. While you are a mean girl, she is in Brooklyn trying to survive in this economy. Um, she has two daughters, one Lily played by Evan Rachel Wood, the other one Dot played by Jenna Boyd. Jenna Boyd is very good. We'll talk about that. Um, and she sort of does... She helps the the native population, the the the, the local people. She pulls a tooth, is what I want to say. I want to mention the tooth because it's a great scene. So Lily gets kidnapped. Evan Rachel Wood gets kidnapped by this band of marauding uh, uh, Apache or yes, Apaches. Thank you. Um, and also with like some white people are part of this gang, and the idea is to sell them into uh, sex slavery or or slavery of some sort Ten in seconds. Mexico. Fuck. Tommy Lee Jones is Kate Blanchett's estranged father. He's sort of went native for a while. He agrees to help her. They go on the track of, the, of the people. Oh my god! How did I not get it out? The central the conceit of this movie is a father-daughter reconciliation. <laughs> it took you fifty seconds to get there. That's half of the fun I of the sixty-second like plot movie. description. Is that we're I don't like bad this movie. at it. Um, I would have watched the teeth pulling the tooth pulling scene okay. eight billion times before I wa- watched one more talk about the opening stern taciturn instance of Kate Blanchett and Tommy Lee Jones trying to reconcile their estrangement. Yes, it, those things are very rote, um, like all of the father daughter stuff. Like even Kate Blanchett, who I think acts it well, sure. if not distinctly, she's not bad. No. Um, yeah, okay. So this movie opened Thanksgiving weekend. It's a dead genre. And it opens with Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett in an outhouse going to the bathroom and immediately follows her ripping out the one tooth from an old lady's 
jaw. Like, I wonder why people weren't down to watch this with their families on Thanksgiving. This movie is real gross. It is. It is. And, like, I do appreciate that about it because, like, I, when I watch old westerns, I, and I get, like, you have to view it through the time, whatever. Like, I hate the kind of gross white sanitization of those movies because, like, that was a fucking horrible time to live and, like, gross and people were largely terrible. Okay, (laughs) here's what I will say because I will actually uh, counterpoint this. I just as much dislike the last 10 years trend of we know that these were awful times to live and we are going to show that by closing up on every fucking grody mouth and tooth being yanked out shows everybody's like grimy fingernails and gross teeth. And we're going to make sure that you know that like it's going to look like it smells and it's going to look like it's, dirty and filthy and there isn't at proper sanitation and like everything about olden times was disgusting and we're going to make sure you know that i would rather the magic of the movies just make me forget about my troubles for a second and part and parcel of that is to not have me imagine a beautiful movie star having gross teeth and i'm talking about <laughs> fucking leo dicaprio and like half of his awards bait movies where it's just like I don't care that in Gangs of New York you probably never bathed. And you know what? I don't want to know it. Fine. And that's that on that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think the missing has Give me John a... Wayne and fucking uh, Dean Martin as, you know, like, ring-a-ding cowboys. Like, I don't care. I would much rather. If the missing is missing... <laughs> um, if the missing lacks a few, like, crucial elements to make it more interesting, I do think it kind of does balance that well, while at the make while at the same time making a movie that's pretty horrifying. Like, the opening joke, like, when they... When she finds Aaron Eckhart's marauded and, like, dismembered body, Oof, he has been, like wrapped up into like a, a papoose cowhide sack with his face hanging out of it and yep. it's hanging over a fire it's it's the visual of the movie for me like it oh, is yeah. i will say for as much as again ron howard's reputation is not this at all like that is a a frame of film i will not soon forget nope um and I guess maybe I want a little bit more of, like, that type of visceral response in the movie. But, like, I was never bored by it. And maybe that's partly because, like, I think Evan Rachel Wood is doing a good job. When she's um, with this, like, group of women and she's also trying to, like, negotiate her own safety with her captors. Like, right. She's really great. And you kind of forget that this was the same year as Thirteen. And I think she was still on once and again at this point, right? Like, I think that show had not ended. So, like, she was, at this point, just, like, a network TV teen daughter. Like, that was what she was famous for. So, like, yeah, this was a very, very big year for her. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. She's I great. mean, like, I'm, maybe none of the reasons that I would have to defend this movie are all that interesting it's just like this is exactly the kind of movie that i maybe should hate and i didn't hate it but where did you come down on like the mystical brujo shaman like 
blowing fancy powders into your face. I think the movie, movie tries to get away with being like, we're not painting Native Americans in this certain way because it's like you Magical have... Magical realism. You have the one guy who is kind of like everybody's following him in this tribe of marauders, but then the rest of them are white. And then on the hero side, you have other Native Americans. Like, this movie was even praised by Native American I know. groups because of the authenticity of... Not only just the language of the Apache people depicted, but like the the way in which they use the language. So it's not just like a bunch of white people interpreting a language that's not their own. Um, it got praise for that. Um, but I do think that the movie is like so obviously trying to avoid things that it doesn't do so. I guess like, and I I appreciate the sensitivity. Um, that's not all of my problems like it only half tips it's just so weird to me and i and i don't think you're wrong but it's weird to me that a comment on the missing would be i appreciate the sensitivity because for me so much of this movie is is brutal is like really like nasty and violent and brutal and the idea that like in some ways we are you know that there is sensitivity being shown towards you know native populations and whatnot it's just like yeah but it's still just like you know violent really violent. yeah yeah and maybe some of that is like clearly this is a, to a certain degree a vanity project for ron howard that he just really wanted to make a western like even in the stuff that i'd read up on the lead up to this movie he talks very much about how a western was something he had always planned to do as a director but it's so ill-matched to some of his, to a lot of his impulses for like this kind of nasty movie that he can't really deliver in a way that just like is is on any level other than ooh that's gross you know yeah am I saying that well no I know what you mean so like the idea to me is in updating the western as a genre and we've seen this throughout many different movies that have tried to update the western in our like you know in our lifetimes essentially and you it feels like filmmakers are you know given a few routes to take one of them is to put it in like actual modern settings right so that's Mm -hmm. your no country for old men hell or high water and that way you can sort of use the tropes of the western genre to comment on you know, things that are more applicable today. And to me, Mm -hmm. that's the kind that succeeds the best with me is for whatever reason, like I find that, you know, a lot more successful. The other Mm -hmm. and one other, another, because I do think there's like essentially like three paths. Another path is to make it like everything we liked about a classic Western and just sort of like make it an honest to God throwback, which I think is what something like, you know, speaking of Val Kilmer, I think that's something that Tombstone does very well, where mm-hmm. Tombstone doesn't really have a whole lot of concern in updating the Western is just like it feels like a revival. And but even that was like so much a trend in the movie. 90s, like they these movies existed in the 90s and then they completely died again. I don't know, because I think by the time you got Tombstone, Unforgiven had already been like the postmodern Western, right? So well, I feel Unforgiven, like Unforgiven, you have Dances with Wolves, like 
Right, but I, Kevin I think Wyatt Earp. I feel like the, I feel like Unforgiven felt like a a fence post enough at the end of the era of the Western that like everything that comes after that feels to me post Western. Yeah. So like the Quick and the Dead, I think I put in with Tombstone a little bit in that like the Quick and the Dead is very stylized, but I don't think it's modernized, and I think that Bad Girls. Right, Bad Girls is similar, where it's just like ultimately these are kind of you're you're zhuzhing up the genre in a way that's making it very watchable and i appreciate that as well the avenue that the missing takes is on the avenue that i hate the most which is we want to make sure that everybody knows that we know the limitations and problems of the western genre as a you know, papering mm-hmm. over of things. So we're going to make sure that you know that we're aware of this by making things as nasty and visceral and grimy and gross as possible. So you know that we're not like making it easy on the audience. We're going to make this challenging. And by challenging, we mean disgusting. And yeah. I fucking hate that the most. Well, maybe, okay, like, maybe in unpacking this movie, I'm like, I didn't necessarily like the movie so much as I found it watchable. Because it also... I don't mean to try and change of, your, your mind on this either. I don't think like, you're changing I, my mind. I just, I think I was expecting, like, a real chore of a movie and, like, I was not bored while watching it, even if I wasn't all that enthused. Yeah. Um, but Yes, I think even in the same vein of what you're talking about, it, like, approaches modernity, but doesn't necessarily have any ideas with it. Because you read Ron Howard's interviews with the time, and he's really focusing on this father-daughter relationship. And he's like, you know, this could be a story in any genre, or it feels like something that we're talking about now. It feels very modern. Like, at the time of these people, they didn't really know how to even they didn't even have a vocabulary for what their emotions were. So it's like, sure. Like in doing so you're stepping up to the thing, but you don't really have anything to say about it. I think especially because they also wanted to approach this in terms of like, what was life like for these women at the time? Um, It's like, if you read anything about settler women, they of course were all just like, going through horrible circumstances where it's like, you know, all of there. Yeah. Yeah. I, did you see this horror movie this year called the wind? No, I I, feel like it, it, I really liked it. It approaches like what femininity meant in this specific, like geographical and historical context. And like, how it would harden femininity and what women's lives were like. And this is just like, well, you know, there were women in the West. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I wouldn't want to was... give too much of the wind away and how it does that because it's, yeah. it, things like kind of developed. I wouldn't want to give spoilers for that movie at the risk of you like snickering at me, which I know you're going to do as soon as I, as I get to the point in the sentence that, is going to trigger you. But did you see the Brit Marling movie where they're defending their home from post-Civil War Can't marauders? imagine you bringing up Brit Marling in any context. Um, okay. okay. <laughs> Joe, famously, the Brit Marling stan. But no, I did I not can't see rem- that movie. It's, it's the, the Keeping Room, something like that, whatever. Yes. Um, 
that that seems like it was another thing of just like remember there were also women at this time um i should mention there is a fourth path to the modernized western that i didn't mention which you know in mentioning unforgiven uh and also open range from this year which is the the western as a as a cause for meditation which is i think i like a lot of those movies where like assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford feels like one of those movies meek's cutoff feels like one of those movies where they're barely westerns but like because of the context they take place and we consider them as such i feel like the homesman wanted to be that a little bit although the homesman blends a couple of these you know approaches to it and I was also trying to think because I brought up the, you know, the revisionist Westerns as a Wikipedia page. So I'm sort of looking through and like True Grit kind of feels like an attempt to thread the needle between the meditation angle and the, you know, we understand what these movies used to be. So we're going to, you know, make sure you see it up close kind of a thing. Cause there's a well, lot of true also, that's like, like, I guess kind of what you're getting at too is like, it's a Western, but it's also a different genre. Like you have true grit, which is basically a comedy, just a buddy like comedy. The, yeah. 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 The yeah, sisters yeah. brothers was, I mentioned the wind yes. and the wind is a horror film. That's a Western, right? Whatever the fuck bone Tomahawk is supposed to be. Yeah. Um, uh, whatever that the fuck... director, it is a pass from me guys. Oh, for sure. Like absolutely. I had to watch assault and cell block, whatever 99 and never again y'all never again. um i was talking to a friend who watched dragged across concrete nope. his new movie with mel gibson if nope. the title and mel gibson's presence is not an automatic no that is a movie that is you know reinforcing yeah. a lot of evil shit and it is guess what almost three hours long yeah another movie that i imagine was a was a um meditation movie although i never saw it was appaloosa i imagine that was slow i don't know i don't know why <laughs> i'm just like ed harris directing but again all of these westerns to bring it back to oscar buzz what the western as a revival is a genre that will bring with it the possibility that like any mm-hmm. one of these could be the next unforgiven so we're gonna give these movies a wide berth towards oscar buzz we're like hostels will get oscar buzz and the homesman and appaloosa and you know, and then a lot of these will pay off. Like again, Assassination of Jesse James gets the nomination for um, Casey Affleck. Three Ten to Yuma ends up being a SAG nominee for Best Ensemble. Three Ten to Yuma, I think, also fits in the same bucket as your Tombstones and your Quick and the Deads. It was just like we're just going to make a really fun western and like let the chips fall where they may. And that's why I really love Three Ten to Yuma. Mm-hmm. Um, Three Barriers of Melchiatus Estrada, you know, Oscar buzz, obviously, that played at Cannes, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Django, or not Django, um, Hateful Eight, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway. The thing I would say about bringing it back to Ron Howard and the Western is, like, he's probably would have been more suited to have stayed doing the Alamo. Because this feels like, yeah. we, oh, absolutely. in terms of Oscar, 100%. we talk about like the tryhard. There's something about this that doesn't just feel like a vanity project thing. It feels a little tryhardy. Um, yeah. And of does. course, like all of this is because this is exactly the type of movie that you probably make, or we should finger quotes say, get to make after you win your Oscar. Because this is two yeah. years after Ron Howard wins for A Beautiful Mind. Right, like, uh, like to to borrow the parlance of you know our our dear friends at at Blank Check, this should have been his Blank Check movie. In that, like, 
you know, he was at, he was riding as high as he would have ever been riding in the industry with a beautiful mind. He could have, you know, made anything that his heart desired. And ultimately it seems like his heart desired a $200 million Alamo movie. Right. And that it ended up being grimy, a, a like, sixty million dollar chamber piece. The missing, yeah. yes, like that's generally a bummer. That's just really because too bad. he wanted to make a western, right? Whereas, like this specific western doesn't feel aligned at all to who he is as an artist. Which, like, it's hard to no. pin down who is Ron Howard, but like you can watch right. this movie and feel a little bit. Well, he's not this. And then trying following this up, now all of a sudden you're following up a, a, a disappointment rather than following up a success. So then he makes Cinderella Man, which that very much feels Cold Mountain esque in terms mm-hmm. of a movie that gets Oscar nominations, but not as nearly as much as what. It just got for Paul Giamatti. You want to talk about the most try-hard Oscar campaign ever. Remember Cinderella Man, how they, half of their campaign, like, in the summer was like... Well, they tried to see Biscuit. They tried to do the thing where, like, hey, you might not have liked it in the spring. Well, they put it in theaters, and they were like, if you don't like the movie, your ticket is free. (laughs) I remember remember just, like, being a mean teenager and laughing my ass off at that because (laughs) they put Cinderella Man back in theaters and advertised it under the guise of... If you don't like the movie, you can get a refund. I like the idea of somebody just for spite going to see the movie and continually getting a refund. And it's just <laughs> like, I've seen Cinderella Man eight times, but I've paid for it none. And it's just like, congratulations. You've really beat the system there. But so it goes from Cinderella Man. And then it's like Da Vinci Code 06. So Cinderella Man was 05. Da Vinci Code 06. And Da Vinci Code feels very much just like, all right, fuck y'all. I'm just going to get money then. Mm-hmm. Like, that's fine. And I think the rest of his career... The rest of his like the the you know the the last ten years of his career has been him sort of like going back and forth between like one Da Vinci Code movie and then one actual movie and then like another Da Vinci Code movie and weirdly I look you know you look at something like the dilemma which is his most forgettable movie right you forget that he even directed that movie that's yeah that's what I mean but also. That's the one I weirdly, like, admire the most for him because it's just like, you know what? This is Ron Howard just wanted to make, uh, I guess, romantic comedy. I guess that's how you would describe that. Although there's not a ton of real romance in it, but, like, a relationship comedy or something. I don't know. It kind of steps towards what I would prefer to see Ron Howard do. And I would want to see, like, parenthood Rob Ron Howard come back. Here's the thing. If you want to see Winona Ryder and Channing Tatum make out like the ship's going down, go to see The Dilemma. And when I say go to see, I mean dig through the bargain bin at whatever Best Buy you're at and try to find it or like go on Amazon and and rent it. But Sorry, girl. I don't do Kevin James. Oh, I don't either. But I will say that was the movie where I'm just like, oh, hey, Channing Tatum can do comedy, you guys. Like, Channing Tatum isn't just, like, the hot soccer player or, like, the hot dancer. Channing Tatum is very funny in that movie, and that was when 21 Jump Street happened, and everybody's like, I don't know, this guy seems like a big, dumb slab of beef. And I'm like, he's a big, dumb slab of beef that has comedy chops, and I know that because I am the one who watched The Dilemma. So, (laughs) there we go. Soderbergh knows he's funny. Um, Yeah, he is. Anyway. Okay, but the Ron Howard thing, because I feel like the giant, like, it wasn't even an elephant in the room, but the very, very, very long shadow that I feel like 
cause the beautiful mind thing to happen, and then a beautiful mind is the domino that makes the missing be a largely predicted um, Oscar contender, uh-huh. is him not getting that nomination for Apollo 13. Oh, that's interesting. So you don't think that a beautiful mind fully papered that over and like put him, like erased I th- that. I just memory. think him not getting that nomination, that director nomination for Apollo thirteen, has had such long legs in terms of a narrative. Um, like I don't think that beautiful mind win happens for him without him not being nominated for Apollo thirteen, and. I don't know. And then it's like, well, I think he's all, in because the fold for, because he won for a beautiful mind, then you have him being kind of like this also ran for Frox, Frost Nixon. That whole Frost Nixon Oscar trajectory. I, I do not understand. I know. No, uh, but like, Fro- no, that's a big deal because like him not getting that director nomination fully derailed Apollo 13 as a, as as an Oscar frontrunner, because it was still of the era of the time that that mattered. Okay, so I have... And, like, I, it's the poster child for that stat that no longer exists. Right. I have... I You've, you've given me food for thought on a couple of things. One of them being <laughs> that Frost Nixon was, to date, the only Best Picture nominee that nobody had any opinion on whatsoever. No. Positive or negative. It was the first true neutral to ever get a Best Picture nomination. And truly must be recognized where was that. that campaign too it was like once they made the movie they like did not lift a fucking finger and still got honor the film honor the man richard nixon yeah. <laughs> honor the snub honor the man but it was i think ultimately i mean i it it stands as a testament to a thing that i don't think exists which is carryover broadway buzz which like doesn't work like absolutely does not work. And yet it seems to have happened with both that movie and Warhorse. Because even though I am famously a giant Warhorse stan and I will go to the mat for that movie, I think that is a good movie. Nobody else thinks that but me. So what is to explain that movie's best picture nomination except for carryover Broadway buzz, which again is not a thing that I think exists. I, I think it doesn't exist in the way that like if you're putting it all on the back of all on Warhorse's Oscar success. No, that is not the thing. I think it's. I think, I think you, mean you put like it on a, the saddle of Warhorse, and I think when I you let have you a that. lot of little things that contribute into one large thing, it can help a movie. It's the same thing that it's like. I think there's a lot of little things that kept like Roma from winning Best Picture that amounted to a larger thing that kept it from winning. Like but a bunch like, of people who said they saw it and didn't see it. Things like those small one things. None of like I, I think like the Netflix thing gets blamed on Roma and it's like maybe that was a small faction of the people that didn't vote for it, but it's also like you have the foreign language thing, you have the black and white thing, you have the it's slow thing, and it's like none of those probably on its own kept it from winning. And I think the converse of that can be like a warhorse situation where it's like it's Spielberg. It's a certain kind of filmmaking. It already has carryover Broadway prestige, and it's like right. no one of those things are enough to get it there, but all of them together. Does. All right, and now I'm gonna back like step back several steps into what I was actually responding to <laughs> with that Frost Nixon aside, um, which was your assertion that the snub for Apollo 13 sort of changes everything. And I think that's true 
but mostly because I think if he doesn't get the best director snub for Apollo 13, Apollo 13 probably wins best picture in 93 Absolutely. and thus and thus he doesn't he doesn't need to win for a beautiful mind in 001 which also actually it probably certainly means... doesn't change his narrative to be like Ron Howard is overdue. Right. So then it becomes does Ron Howard win his second Oscar for a beautiful mind or Absolutely not. You think it does? You think he Abs- does? He does not win a second Oscar for that. If he, if oh, Apollo so you think 13, he doesn't? Yeah. Okay, so you think so? Maybe then in he that case, even if he's nominated and doesn't win for Apollo thirteen, but like, so then does A Beautiful Mind not win Best Picture that year? In which case, Fellowship of the Ring wins Best Picture, which means Return of the King does not win in 03, which means Mystic River wins. Like, what wins Best Picture in 03? Follow me down this rabbit hole. I mean, I think in a vacuum, if Lord of the Rings didn't exist or Lord of the Rings didn't exist as an awards player, I think you might be talking actually about Master and Commander. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I don't, I, I can never see it with that movie, but I'm, that's maybe my You don't see it for her. Ideas. That's fine. I don't. I don't see but it for you her. see all those nominations and like. No, the, I see. I know what you mean. The type of things that were being rewarded that year. It's such a technical achievement though. Like nobody, even the people who like. I mean, whatever, maybe some people do. Like, that is a respect but not love movie if I ever saw one. Oh, see, I love it. I love I it. I know. I know. Like, I just the rigor of it, like I can feel it in my bones. So it's like it's a physical feeling, <laughs> not just like, like an emotional one. Well, but also again, like what you said, like I can't imagine people being like, Ugh, the rigor of that movie. Honestly, I'm weak in the knees. You know what it's I mean? Like you people don't, don't... Li- you first of all, there's no women in the movie, so you don't have a point of entry into it. Uh, that, uh like oh, we, we sorry, as Mr. Glasshouse. Like, like, no, that, I'm saying that good too. Stone like, my there, my, my friend. issue with the movie is Russell Crowe isn't that interesting. Okay, yeah, this is what I mean. It's it's elsewhere, a it's a movie like, with a with a gap at its center, where its emotions should be. It doesn't hinder the movie completely to me. The rigor. It's maybe not the complete home run, but I think I it's a very good movie. If, I just don't, I don't see people Apollo loving third- it. Okay, anyway, go back to Apollo 13. I don't know if the Apollo 13 thing would have, like, that much of a ripple effect that it's, like, it would eventually dismantle the return of the king. But, like, I also don't think that Fellowship of the Ring would be the winner in the event that A Beautiful Mind doesn't win. What do you Um, think, then? What's the winner? Moulin Rouge? I don't know. I just don't think... I don't, I mean, maybe just like, I think with these things, like there would be whole narrative shifts because like a beautiful mind was built on its narrative was built on Russell Crowe becoming like our leading right. actor and also, which is why Ron I think Howard just finally wins being anyway. honored for like his career and the fact that he had never won and was overlooked for the time that he could have been. Right, and the fact that he was never really supposed to, quote-unquote, supposed to win for Gladiator, and that always felt like a, um, you know, premature, I don't, don't make me say, like, whatever. They shot their wad too early on Russell Crowe with, with Gladiator. That, like, that was supposed to wait for a year, and he was supposed to win for A Beautiful Mind, because that's sort of what the narrative was mm-hmm. shaping up for. And that he didn't, 
is good because then you have that great Denzel moment at the Oscars with Sidney Poitier, and like I'm glad we didn't have to trade Those that. Those are for two anything. great wins. That best and ultimately, him winning in 2000 robs Tom Hanks of a third for Castaway, which I think is fine, and like Javier Bardem, who would eventually win anyway. So like that's fine. Um, you know what? I, they could have just given Russell Crowe his Oscar for The Insider. Yeah, well, that would have solved a lot of problems. Like hindsight being 2020, that would have solved a lot of problems. But that didn't happen. Insider's also but great. Ultimately, I think I do feel like. I feel you a little bit in that, like, the Oscars were not ready to reward Fellowship. Although I do remember that year that, like, Fellowship was a bigger contender than maybe you're remembering. Where, like, there no, was a... I remember it being big. It's just, like, I guess it's the simple fact that they were not ready to do it. My Whereas, feeling like, with A Beautiful two Mind. Years time, it became this inevitability because Lord of the Rings was this huge cultural moment. Right in a way that it had like an air of pretension to it and that like Harry Potter never was able to get right. that like people like stuffy people took it seriously. The bottom line for me with the beautiful mind is that such a terrible movie pulled the wool over so many eyes. So definitively means that like it was always going to win. You know what I mean? Like people right. were always going like to love book. it. Yeah. Yeah. And by Amy Rhapsody. Green Book is a better movie than A Beautiful Mind. There, I said it. I would have to rewatch A Beautiful Mind. I only ever saw it when I saw it, it in is the a theaters for the first piece time. of junk. It is really, really embarrassingly bad. Anyway, back to the missing. Do we want to talk about Kate Blanchett and the missing? I don't think there's much to say about her. The I think thing she's to say good, about but not Kate great. Blanchett is like this is we talked about this when we did our episode on the gift recently. That there's this whole like post Elizabeth blur right. with Kate Blanchett where it's like there's so much stuff. And not all of it is all that interesting. And this was the last it, year before This is it like changed. the last vestige of it. Um, I don't the, think she's really tasked to do, do much or to really have much emotional range. I think like you get who her, the sense of who her character is like almost immediately. Yeah. Um, so it's like you almost wish that it wasn't a prestige actress or like somebody who didn't really get to headline a movie this way so that it could have been a little more interesting. Yeah. Um, I just don't like, what is, what is this character's arc in this movie to me? Like, I guess she finds a way to forgive her dad, but like, to me that doesn't, that's not super compelling to me. She finds her daughter. Good. I don't know if I get a whole ton of, value out of her being like a woman on the frontier or wherever it's a it's a little bit of a laziness thing where it's like you think where it's like they cast tommy lee jones and kate blanchett in this in those roles and they think that at least narratively like 75 percent of the work is done just by having those right. actors there's like because like we mark bring equals certain, profit just like yeah, yeah we bring like, a certain like cultural knowledge of these performers and the roles they've played to the plate already when we watch them play these characters mm-hmm. that it's like we can kind of fill in the gaps that the movie leaves but that's lazy but yeah the movie does leave those gaps definitely yeah so this was the, the year before the aviator which ch- changes Blanchett's Oscar narrative for good. She becomes an Oscar winner with The Aviator, and then it becomes Kate Blanchett is one of the best actresses in the world, which she always was. It doesn't change her ability. It just changes, I think, the way 
that people view her. And I think the road from the aviator then to Blue Jasmine is just like the respect factor for Blanchett keeps going up and up and up and up. That that was the era where she couldn't miss as a nominee. She was getting nominated for um, I'm Not There. She was getting nominated for Notes on a Scandal, you know, as a lead in a supporting nomination, which ultimately I can't have any quarrel with because it gives us her big here I am scene. And honestly, <laughs> God bless you at so many points of your life. Here I am. Yeah, it's great. But this whole scene leading up to that, I think I've mentioned this before. The whole scene leading up to here I am is also great where she's just like <laughs> reading Judy Dench for filth, where she's just like, you shriveled up old virgin. Like it's so harsh and mean and like, delicious it is like the library is open uh, <laughs> challenge on drag race but like it lasts for seven minutes and it is just like uptown downtown all of it and it's you think this is a love affair a relationship what sticky gold stars and, 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 and a strand of my hair and a receipt from pizza express it's a flat in the archway road and you think a virginia frigging wolf where did you get my hair? Did you pluck it from the bath with some special fucking tweezers? Don't you know it's rude to read a person's diary? It's private! Companions, we're not friends. You just don't even like me! That's not true. I only have tender feelings for you. Only love! No! Fucking, fucking mad. You don't know how to love. You've never your whole life. Me, Jennifer Dodd. You're nothing but waste and disappointment. <laughs> you bitter old virgin! You're lonely for a reason. They loathed you at school, all of them. I was the idiot who bothered, but only because no one told me you're a fucking vampire! Did you think this was a love affair? Like, it's just so... That whole reading so challenge episode, there's a cutaway to a confessional of Bill Nye being like, the jokes weren't jokes, she was just being mean. <laughs> Where were the jokes? Yeah. Anyway, God, notes on a scandal. Find a way to make that a drag race challenge somehow. I don't care what. Just like, <laughs> that's the new rusical. Notes on a scandal. Hose on a scandal. Um, Yes. Make it happen. Oh, my goodness. All right. We want to talk about Tommy Lee Jones, the notorious TLJ. <sighs> notorious TLJ. It feels like this was like i said it's like a lazy casting choice but it's like a little bit in the way that this is like the end of kate blanchett's boring period this is like the beginning (laughs) of tommy lee jones's interesting period um very much so yeah because he's about to get his next nominations for lincoln and in the valley of ayla um probably should have been nominated no for country. no country for old man yeah. he's so great in that yeah because you look at his career leading up to the missing and it was a lot of well it was we mentioned double jeopardy when we did our episode on double jeopardy which i think he's actually like a lot of fun in um but like rules of engagement space cowboys the hunted um Just u.s marshals to use what right. tommy lee jones is giving you people really love him change. in the men in black movies and that's good i love volcano famously so like i'm not gonna give him too much shit for volcano yeah i think you look at him from the missing onward and it's the missing three burials his small little role in a prairie home companion which i really love no country for old which is men. like some of these are all riffs on westerns right. too so it's like it's not like he was being like stretched necessarily but he is being 
cast in roles that use his persona yeah. in interesting ways that I don't think The Missing does. Yes, I think that's right. And I think, but like, clearly the sort of alt-Western becomes a major part of his wheelhouse in a way that it hadn't been kind of at all in his career up until now. Do you know what I mean? Where, like, all mm-hmm. of a sudden now it's like, who's your go-to, like, you know... Uh, the homesman is a big example of that where it's just like, he's, he's a very obvious casting choice for that movie. And it's because of all of these movies and just like older male American, like on we, or like yeah. a certain person, like he, a certain things that he does about like American perspective. Did you ever see like, I'm thinking of Ella and Lincoln specifically? Did you ever see that movie blown away? With him and Jeff Bridges, <laughs> probably as a kid, he's like the villain. He's the right? villain. He's the the Irish um, sort of like terrorist bomber, and Jeff Bridges is um, the cop who has to, or the FBI agent or whatever, who has to stop him. And so that movie was 1994, and so Tommy Lee Jones is coming off of his Oscar for The Fugitive and Jeff Bridges wasn't nominated in 2003, but like fearless was a big Oscar player in, in 93 as well. And so they're both at this point, like serious dramatic actors. And so that was sort of a kind of a pot boiler movie for the both of them. But you look at their careers and how they kind of diverged and that they both went in these very specific directions. Although interestingly enough, Bridges comes back to the West comes to the Western for true grit. Um, also but like bridges sort of becomes the dude right from from he does lebowski in 98 and from that point that sort of changes his whole persona like his whole persona sort of funnels into that dude adjacent kind of thing while tommy lee jones's persona sort of coalesces around this kind of thing the sort of haggard he becomes grizzled grumpy cat on the frontier kind of thing Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 in a cowboy yeah so i don't know i just think it's interesting He's just in a cowboy hat. It's his Joanne era. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. All of that. Yes. All right. So tell me what you think about The Missing in terms of what it represents for failed Oscar buzz in 2003. Because I think there's a lot of points of entry here and that like this is emblematic of what was failing this year. Yeah. Well, I think every year you wa- you go into a year and you and you try and predict what the Oscar movies are going to be. My go to uh, initially more than movie stars, more than studios, more than whatever is I look at who the major directors are and what their movies have coming. And Howard because he was an Oscar winner by that point was going to be a major contender just based on he's Ron Howard. He's a former Oscar winner. Everything that he does now is going to be viewed through that lens. Mostly (laughs) the dilemma. And almost immediately after we see why that is not a bad point of analysis because Frost Nixon happened. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's not like, you know, purely just on essentially the status of who he was, like who was passionate about that. Movie. Right. So 2003 had a lot of director first movies, some which paid off Clint Eastwood. Mystic river was one where former Oscar winner comes back and makes good, but um, didn't work for Jane Campion. And in the cut didn't work for Robert Benton with the human stain. It didn't work for um, Anthony Minghella for cold mountain or Robert Altman for the company 
or Tarantino in yeah. a way that I think I think there's going to be people who will have wished that we'd talked about Kill Bill. It just feels still on the outside. Like it's it's not at the point where Tarantino doing his Tarantino thing was fully embraced by the Academy in the way that it is now. And... I almost wonder if Kill Bill happened today would we at least be looking at a few craft nominations? Would Uma Thurman have more of a chance? I think that is true. Boy, that but would be nice. Because like... Kill Bill ultimately is such a better movie than the movies he ends up getting Oscar nomination nominations for. Yes. When we're talking about Django and Hateful Eight. I like Inglorious Bastards, but like I would take Kill Bill volume I one like over all of them. And mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think ultimately Kill Bill, for as much as people were talking about Uma as a dark horse possibility as a dark horse possibility for best actress people. I think kill bill was very easily slotted into popular entertainment rather than an Oscar play. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately it, you know, was shut away in that box. I think because I've talked before and it's kind of a nebulous thing about what the 10 did to kind of shift the conversation and how like things would try to work their way into the Oscar conversation that otherwise maybe wouldn't have gone for it. And I do think that Tarantino has been one of the filmmakers who has benefited the most from that and that it made room for the kind of movies that he makes. Yeah. I think that's true. I definitely think that's true. So yeah, I think ultimately if you want to talk about what the missing sort of says in the greater 2003 narrative, it is very much emblematic of the, and again, it was late November too, so like it was slotted for the most prestigious Oscar slot. It was really, really mm-hmm. positioned for that way. And I think 2003 is a year where a lot of those really reliable directors who were supposed to be coming out with like statements on their career, like Campion was supposed to like In the Cut was supposed to be the most daring, you know, mm-hmm. movie and she was and it was Meg Ryan who we talked about that in our Courage Under Fire episode where Meg Ryan was supposed to was always on the cusp of like what's her big Oscar breakout and this would have been challenging and dark and a, and a change of pace and all of those things that Oscars have loved for other actors in the past. Look at what Charlize Theron this very year. Like in many ways Charlize Theron's Oscar mm-hmm. narrative for Monster was what people wanted Kept, for Meg Ryan yeah. for In the Cut which was darker, transformative um and ultimately bowling you risky, over right risky yeah. and bowling you over with with the quality of the performance and ultimately mm-hmm. Charlize Theron you know steals her lunch and steals everybody's lunch in this movie and and takes it all the way um we've also talked to one thing i think about the missing specifically in 2003 we've talked before how like there's only so much oxygen in the room for sameness and yeah. while like Cold Mountain and The Missing, if you put them next to each other, the films themselves, they couldn't really be that more different. But when you're faced with a lot of large-scale epics and a lot of period pieces that are of a certain, like, dryness, I guess, something is just not going to have any room for conversation. And I think The Missing was one of them. Because it's like, yes, the movies are different, but if you're looking at, like, Master and Commander, Seabiscuit, The Missing, Cold Mountain, Last Samurai, Last Samurai, like something's gonna fall. Yeah, out, the right? EW, like they're not the same movies, but like they're gonna be thought of in the same way and competing for the same yeah 
space. The EW issue uh, called that out a couple times, where when they were in the write-up of Last Samurai, they mentioned that, like, it's going to be Last Samurai or the Alamo or Master and Commander. Like, one of these will emerge as a major contender. And ultimately, they were right mm-hmm. in that it was Master and Commander. But, yeah, yeah, it was. it's my American Idol theory, which is... People sort of sometimes wonder when there's a big shocking elimination, you know, during the heyday of American Idol. But essentially, it was Jennifer Hudson, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. ultimately, American Idol is about having your whole voting block to yourself. And until you are the only person in your bucket who's left, you are going to have problems with, you know, internal competition, mm-hmm. right? So Jennifer Hudson got eliminated early because there were three sort of like big belty divas similar genre, right yeah. whereas like nobody was you know ring-a-ding john stevens or whatever the hell his name was um <laughs> so his little like buble light thing right was the only game in town for that yeah. genre so if that kind of thing appealed to you that's what you Wasn't were going for the kevin covea season yes american idol had one of those every season for like several years and everybody like, was look at this nerd right, and everybody was always just so like why sing. is this person succeeding he can't sing and it's just like dummy like that's not what this is about this is about being the only adorable moppet in your bucket and you're or like diana DeGarmo was the only cheerful little theater kid in in her bucket and you're getting all those votes to yourself and until you know you've whittled your subgenre down to just you and that's i mean oscar doesn't do that so explicitly but like you're right i think ultimately too much sameness is going to make people choose you know one winner and -hmm. not every year can be no country for old men and there will be blood as just like you know we're gonna we're gonna wait till the very end to decide which one of those is supreme and we're gonna nominate them both so yes indeed do you want to talk about our little uh our pet pet award yeah, Save. I mean, our good. Our, we are starting with our 2003 miniseries with our favorite award. It's the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. Tommy Lee Jones got a Best Actor nomination. Who did he lose to? Who did he lose to? Let me look that up. Hold okay, on. sorry, I thought you oh, had it in front of who me. Do you, who are you going to guess that he lost? In to? 2003, there's a good chance that he lost to Bill Murray for Lost in Translation. I could see that as a Movies for Grown Ups fave because it's very much about a grown-up sort of confronting his grown-upness in the face of, you know, a younger admirer, but also, you know, there's a lot of movies for grown-ups appeal to Lost in Translation, even though it's a Sofia Coppola movie. I think Jack Nicholson and Something's Gotta Give was probably a nominee. Um, I don't know. Bridges and Seabiscuit, maybe? What are we looking at? Jack Nicholson was not a nominee. Jeff Bridges was not a nominee. But... Your impulse was right. Bill Murray won. Yeah. He was nominated against Albert Finney and Big Fish, Ben Kingsley, House of Sand and Fog, and as we will discuss later, Anthony Hopkins and the no! Human Stain. Amazing. Yeah, that had to have been like the only thing the Human Stain. Got oh, I love it. God bless you, AARP. You always come through for us. I love it. All right. You want to talk about IMDb again? All right. Yeah, IMDb game. So the IMDb game, we end all of our episodes with this. We challenge each other to name the top four titles that IMDb says a famous actor or actress is most known for. 
we will uh, offer up initially the hints of if there's voiceover work as one of these or if there is any television. We try to avoid Harry Potter and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They float to the top, and that makes the game super boring. Uh, you get two wrong guesses before you get the years, and then if that doesn't give you the answer, it's just kind of like a free-for-all of hints, Indeed. man. Indeed it is. Would you like to guess first, or would you like to go first? I feel like I always pick one and not the other, and now I can never remember which is the one that I always pick. So I'll give first. Why not? Okay. All right. So what you got for me? I won't tell you why I picked this until you start guessing, because I, I, if, I, if I tell you, it'll give it away. It'll give one of them away. Okay. So I picked Tay Diggs for you. So why don't you give me the known four for Tay Diggs? Tay Diggs... Um... Is Rent one of yes, them? Yes, correct. Rent. Um, Chicago. Chicago, which is the reason why I picked which this, is, which is... It, it's dumb because he's just like the narrator. He says five, guy. six, seven, eight, really convincingly. Yeah. Yeah. And he also says... He's like fifth build or something crazy, too. So it's like, that's got to be He it. also says... Um, fuck, what does he say when, when Velma's about to do um, I Can't Do It Alone? In an act, In an act of, of, desperation. of desperation. Yes, all that stuff. Yeah, so Chicago, the reigning best picture of this year, and we have talked in our table setting episode previous to this one about how a lot of the 2003 Oscar buzz was a reaction to the Chicago Oscar buzz. So yes, two for yeah. two, Rent and Chicago, both musicals off the board for Tay Diggs. I am going to have a gamble and say a Netflix movie set it up. No. Mm. I've never seen a Netflix movie. Not as popular as you think you are, Netflix. I've never seen a Netflix movie on a known four, but like, that's not to say that... According to Netflix, all of their movies have been watched by 40 million viewers, so I don't know why it's not there. Literally every movie that comes out, they toll out the same number of viewers have watched the movie. Yes rather annoying okay so i have one wrong answer two right answers um tay Diggs, the best man no good guess but no mm, all right good movie so both of the movies that you're missing are from the same year they're both from 1999 um house on haunted hill yes i would have never um, got that house on haunted hill is so the good. remake of the um, vincent Price had... movie house on haunted hill I had a VHS, both recorded from a pay-per-view on the same VHS, uh, The Craft and House on Haunted Hill. Wow. Boy, the cast of House on Haunted Hill is honestly like a like a Halloween bag where it's like six different types of candy that you want to hand out. Wilson Sampras. But like, it's not the high end candy. It's your double bubbles and your like um, smarties, the little chalky smarties and like dots and whatever. It's yes. It's Bridget Wilson, Sampras, Chris Kattan, Peter Gallagher, Gallagher. Allie Larder, Tay Diggs, Famke Jansen, and then Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey Rush as the, the Vincent Price character. I would be willing to bet this movie is probably on all of the lead cast top four, except or known for, except for Jeffrey Rush and Peter Gallagher, because we've both done them before. Well, I'm not going to say because we could do any of these in the future. We could do them in the future. Yeah. All right. The new, the new catch-all for uh, the IMDb game is <laughs> House, House on Haunted Hill. Hill. All right. So uh, you got one okay. More. What? 1999. 1999. Tay Diggs. Um, 
The poster, by the way, for House on Haunted Hill is a handprint, and within the palm part of the handprint are the faces of Tay Diggs, Ellie Larder, Jeffrey Wright, or Jeffrey Rush. Why do I keep saying Jeffrey Wright? Jeffrey Rush, Chris Kattan, and Bridget Wilson Sampras. So sucks to be you, Famke Jansen, that you don't make the poster, and Ali Larder and Bridget Wilson Sampras did. Was How Stella Got a Groove Back 99, or was that like 96? That was earlier. I want to say that was like 95, 96. Mm, but it's not the It is one. not. Okay. It sure is not. Is Stella it was 98, go? actually. So just the year prior. Yes, it is Go, my beloved Go. Oh, Go is so Which good. Which means that Go was Tay Diggs' second movie. Costello was famously what? his first. Wild. Yeah. Stella Got Her Groove Back was introduced, and I don't know if it said specifically and introducing um, Tay Diggs, but it was very much introducing Tay Diggs. Like that was, he was such a sensation just from how good he looked in mm-hmm. that movie. His character's name in that movie is Winston Shakespeare, which... God bless. Of course. God bless it. Um, Tay Diggs, who fully is like, I think the only verified bot on Twitter, because if you <laughs> look it up, I think he follows like half a million people or something. I am one of them. Yes, it's true. I think he follows me yeah. too. He finger quotes follows finger quotes. Love you, Tay. Me. All right. Good job. You got it with only two strikes. So good job. All right. Um, okay. So yours. Um, actually went with a cast member of the missing noted weirdo. And star in, I believe, multiple Ron Howard films, Val Kilmer. Oh, noted weirdo indeed. Okay. (sighs) This one's kind of fun. It's Oh, this is challenging because I want to guess his most well-known movie, but he's not the lead of it. I will, just because I won't be able to get it off his mind. So is it Top Gun? No, Top Gun is not in Val Kilmer's known form. I don't think so. Tombstone? Not Tombstone. That's two wrong guesses. I am the king of two wrong guesses right off of the bat. I'm really... All right, so your Val Kilmer years, 2005, 1991, 1997, and 2002. All right, 2005 is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, good movie. What are the other years? 91? 91, 97, 2002. 91, 2007, 2002, so not his Batman movie. 1997, not 2007. Well, that's also not his Batman movie, though. Um, 97, boy, are these some, like, weird movies? No. No. I mean, one of them maybe, but... So 1991 is post-Top Secret and and Top Gun, but pre... The point where he was sort of like a steady leading man. Pre-Batman. Right. Is it Thunderheart? It is not Thunderheart. Mm. It is not as difficult as you think it is. 91. Yes. It's post-Willow, which is why he's in uh, The Missing, by the way. It's because he knew Ron Howard from Willow. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Wait, 97... Is 97 The Saint? It is The Saint. (laughs) Okay. All right. So what else am I missing now? 91, 2002. 91, maybe it's difficult for you because I figured that this was like 94, 97, but no, it's 1991. Famous director who we have talked about, Val Kilmer, in a movie with, but not this movie. Huh. 
I believe we could talk about this movie. Let me look this up and see. So it was Yeah, we could eventually do this movie. Could be a this had Oscar Buzz movie. Um shit. Is he the lead? He is the lead. It is a biopic. Also playing a weirdo. Weirdos playing weirdos. Who knew? In ninety one. Oh, you see his uh, it's the doors. It's the doors. It's the doors. Okay. All right. Playing Jim Morrison. All right. Okay. Um, is 2002 the Salton Sea? It is the Salton Sea. Shut the sea. fuck up. Okay. When I said, <laughs> are these weird ones and you see the Salton Sea there, your answer is yes. When the Saint okay, and the Salton yeah. Sea are two of his known fours. Yes. The answer is yes. The Saint was a like. Don't say blockbuster. I'm looking that up. It was a it was a headlining movie. Typing this into box office mojo right now to see how much movie it was. It was definitely a summer movie. Or it was not. It was released in April. (laughs) Never mind. Hold on. The Saints. You know what you're gonna find? April fourth, nineteen ninety seven. It made $61 million, so it was a mid-level. That's good by 90s standards. That's pretty good. Fine, fine. You know what? That's a $100 million movie. I guess I'm going to go and watch The Saint today because I apparently missed a great touchstone of 90s cinema in missing Philip Noyce's The Saint. If I knew Philip Noyce in real life, every single time I saw him, I would just say, Noyce! (laughs) Everything, like, in response to everything he said. All right. Philip Noyce has something coming out this year that's fully weird. What did I see? I was I came across it today. Let me look it up. Philip Noyce, famously, I believe, the director of Rabbit Proof Fence, yeah. which sat on the um, Miramax Speaking like, of, award site for two years. Was that a 2003 movie, ultimately, or was that an 02 movie? Uh, it's listed on IMDb as 02. Yeah, but I think it might not have opened in the States until 03. Oh, this is why I bring this up. He is directing a film coming out with Amelia Clark this year called Above Suspicion, who is second build currently on IMDb. Famously, we've previously talked about Thora Birch. Right. She getting roles. Rabbit Proof Friends was Working released in limited noise. release in 2002, so we don't have to worry about it as an 03 like movie. A qualifier. Um, Val Kilmer's character's name in The Saints, by the way, is Simon Templar, which is Nicolas Cage levels of, like, character. Whereas, like, what's his character's name in, like, Cameron Poe? You know how, like, Nicolas Cage <laughs> characters are all named goddamn ridiculous? Like, what's his character in Face Off? It's, like, like Eddie December or something like that. It's all, like, it's all just preposterous. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, I'm looking up Nicholas. Any last words on the missing? Anything we should be excited about for our next episode on 2000? Well, our next episode, you know, open up that oven door and get ready for Sylvia Plath, y'all. It's happening. We'll be moving on to a different type of vanity project. We are moving on to the biopic of 2000. The biopic. Would this have been famously? Would that have been the first movie I saw Daniel Craig in? Uh, I mean, if you saw Layer Cake, no. But I don't think I saw Layer Cake till later. But anyway, it's Sylvia. Get excited. Sylvia coming up next. Get ready for, um, get your goop out. Nicolas Cage's Uh, character in The Weatherman is named David Spritz. Sure. Motherfucker. Like, are you goddamn kidding me? 
Wait, I want to look. I want to find Face Off now because it's Face Off. Cameron Poe in Con Air, Caster Troy in Face Off, Stanley Goodspeed in The Rock. People don't talk about this enough that like all of Nicolas Cage's weirdness as a person, Sailor Ripley in Wild at Heart. Nicolas Cage characters are named the goddamn weirdest. I'm going to stick by that. I'm going to say that. I'll stick by that. You know what I have to stick by? Um, You know, Gore Verbinski, I had this conversation with him because I guess I I know him in this. Uh, Gore Verbinski, when he was asking me why the weatherman failed as hard as it did, I told him, you made the weatherman, (laughs) and then you stand outside in the rain and say, shit, it's raining. Nope. Nope. The FBI is on their way. They finally caught you. Your reign of terror is finally over. that line into every episode for 2003. It's finally over. And uh, with that, with um, this meteorology <laughs> report, that's our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Limited. Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. And please also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, please tell our listeners where they can find you and your weather reporting. <laughs> sure. I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd. Joe Reed is the name as well. And I am smoking in the cowhide that is Twitter oh at Chris V. File, um, F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. Uh, I also have a running list of this had Oscar buzz titles with our IMDb game stats and direct links to episodes. And you can also find me at thefilmexperience.net. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. So please don't let us go missing. Nope. Uh, let us find new listeners, uh, be they Tommy Lee Jones or otherwise. Um, or whether we're in a cowhide bag over a fire or otherwise. Um, But that's all for this week. We hope you come back next week for more Buzz and more 2003.